0: Welcome to episode 10 of the Haskell cast. I'm Brian Hendricks with my co-host Chris Forno. Our guest today is Brian O'Sullivan. You probably know Brian because he's written about half of the Haskell code you use or because he manages the Facebook team that uses Haskell. I don't. You don't know. We can it. talk about that. <laughs> okay, let's start there then. What do you do with <laughs> Facebook?
1: So my job at Facebook is to work on developer efficiency, for want of a better description. And so that takes uh, two different aspects, right? On the one hand, uh, we build tools to try and make life easier and smoother for our engineers. And on the other hand, we build defensive tooling to try and make it safer for our engineers to make mistakes. So on the, on the doing things efficiently side, that involves everything from source control through to um, compilers through to continuous integration infrastructure. And on the uh, making it safe to make mistakes, things like static analysis tools, test infrastructure, and other good stuff like that.
0: I see. And what is your relationship to the team that Simon Marlowe is on? Uh, none <laughs> yep so uh what what the backstory there is
1: um is I've known Simon for a long time, and uh when I got inkling of the possibility that he might be lured out of Microsoft research, I did my bit to uh see him uh safely into facebook and i did actually work closely with him for i don't know maybe the first year or so that he was at the company mm-hmm. um but then he had a sufficient degree of uh of success without really needing any input from me that um we were able to uh go our separate way so we still talk on a fairly regular basis but uh, we have no direct working relationship these so days. do
0: you use mostly haskell for your day job or is it a part of me? Your day job yeah
1: I would say I use mostly my mouth for my day job. Fair enough. And uh, I might get to spend a few minutes a week coding if I'm lucky, but uh, no more is code really part of my actual responsibility.
0: Sure. So then you you work on a team. Does that team use Haskell? Does it? I, I know that Simon's team uses Haskell. I'm trying to figure mm-hmm. out what penetration haskell's had into the engineering culture at facebook
1: so we probably have we've got a you know decent sized handful on the order of a couple dozen people using haskell as their day jobs um and i do have a team that does some work in haskell um i also have some engineers doing some work in OCaml. uh we're we're a fairly big tent sort of company right so we have people using all kinds of other functional languages, too, from Erlang through to Clojure through to a little bit of uh, anything that you care to name, and that makes for a uh, pretty interesting environment to work in.
0: Were you a part of the process of selling Haskell to Facebook? How, how was Haskell sold? How was Facebook convinced that they should work with that technology?
1: Um, There isn't really a process for selling a programming language to Facebook. Uh, Usually the way that that sort of thing happens is quite organic. So as a case in point, you know, some engineers come along and decide, hey, we're going to build Thing X in Language Y, and, you know, provided they're not coming up with something completely lunatic like, hey, we're going to build a massively scalable system in Ruby, then <laughs> they just kinda of go do that. <laughs> and you know, we'll 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 deal with the uh the, the necessary uh, tooling adjustments and so on as necessary. So we're we're not very centralized in that respect. People have a fair degree of flexibility in uh, choosing the right tool for the job.
0: So there's no overarching sort of attempt to control or unify or Rationalize is the term I've heard before, programming language choices at Facebook?
1: Uh, I'd say it's very, very minimal, right? So, you know, obviously we don't want every engineer to be using a language of their choosing, right? Because then you end up with this Tower of Babel effect. But um, we do give people a, a good degree of uh, flexibility in making the right choices for their circumstances. Now, of course, you know, oftentimes what people find in practice is that language choice can be secondary to availability of libraries when it comes to actually being productive and therefore you know facebook having 10 years of investment in a relatively tight core of different languages such as c hack python and um, and one or two others it's going to be much easier to get your work done in a language where you can just pick up some library and start using it, rather than to go, oh, well, you know, this is going to be great after I get my first year's worth of preparatory stuff out of the way. Then I can actually be productive.
2: So th- let's get into just a little bit of the specifics of of this at Facebook. I know that uh, Hack, for instance, the Hack language, uh, looks like it's written in No Camel, But then there's also Sigma, which relates to Hack, uh, sorry, Haxl somehow, Um mm-hmm. Could you speak a little bit more about S- Sigma? Yeah, so Sigma is
1: our spam fighting service and it uses Haxl as uh, essentially a core. Right? Haxl is a a core library that provides an abstraction for asynchronously and efficiently fetching and batching fetches and caching results of data fetches from All of our various internal services and it's it's written in quite a general way right so it's not actually tied to facebook infrastructure which is what a part of why we've been able to uh, open source it so early in its history so think of haxel as kind of the underlying abstraction that powers um how sigma is implemented these days okay
2: how has your personal experience with haskell Affected how you direct and lead the team, I know you're spending most of your time managing, um, mm-hmm. but I'm sure you field questions from some of the engineers and you have some input in the design.
1: Um, I actually try not to have any input in the design right so that's that's not what I see as kind of the the the, the value that I try to bring to these different teams um, but let's let's pull it back to the, the the Haskell side. I think it's actually relatively hard to to tie uh, any Haskell experience to the kind of work that I do these days, right? So, you know, for the most part, I'm responsible for dealing with, uh, you know, this this big, diverse population of engineers and trying to come up with tools and approaches that are going to work for them. And um, I suppose the, the, the most obvious way in which there's a connection between the two is just in how open-minded a lot of people in the Haskell community taught me to be relatively early in my career uh... where people were just curious and you know willing to explore new things willing to try interesting and not necessarily conventional ideas so i think that personal influence far more than any kind of um, you know love of abstraction or anything like that really stuck with me uh, 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 more and more, as my kind of career evolved from banging out code to managing, to you know managing these larger organizations.
2: You you mentioned that you only get maybe a few minutes, if you're lucky, a week to <laughs> work uh, to work with code. But I, I have yep. noticed that you still you still do manage to sometimes make some uh, really interesting changes to your personal projects, specifically mm-hmm. regarding performance and dealing with some edge cases that you've run into. Um, yep. And uh, just to name a few that people may not realize uh, you're behind, uh, you have ASIN, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, yep. uh, a- Adoparsec, Text, Criterion. These, these are kind of, uh, I, I think of them as foundational libraries for a lot of professional Haskell work that's going on from, from what I've seen. Uh, how? So I, I imagine you don't get much time to do this anymore. How, how mm-hmm. difficult is it to jump back in and make a change if you haven't looked at the code for, I don't know, months or a year?
1: Um, It's pretty straightforward. You know, it might take me a little while to kind of spin back up to speed, but one of the big ways in which these uh, libraries that I built, I tried to make them um, maintainable was by, you know, writing them in the most straightforward manner that I could that still actually delivered the performance that I thought I needed. And um, that means that the code is actually relatively accessible for the most part to you know either an outsider or me putting on my outsider hat after not having looked at any of it for ages
0: I was going to say I sometimes think that if I write the most clever code I can there's a good chance I won't be able to understand it later
2: oh yeah absolutely <laughs> well speaking, speaking of some, some clever code um, y- there's an interesting balance that you seem to strike between cleverness and uh, performance um, and with performance, this criteria on this, this benchmarking, micro-benchmarking library. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw something interesting about it that I haven't seen before, and that mm-hmm. was that you uh, provide a linear regression model. Uh, yeah. was, that, was that an idea that came to you, or you'd seen it before in other tools, or you're just used to using that kind of statistical tool? You know, that idea came from a
1: similar benchmarking library that some folks at I think Jane Street wrote uh, for OCaml applications. <laughs> so it's been it's been kind of an interesting um, process of people lifting the best ideas from from each other, right? So the the original basis that cr- uh, Criterion was written on, I think, came from uh, like the the core of a. Java benchmarking uh, tool, and the Java benchmarking tool had a much more complicated environment to deal with, right? Because of course, the uh, the Java JIT has this habit of uh, changing the behavior of your code over the course of time. So Haskell is uh, more straightforward to deal with on that front, and um, the folks who built this uh, OCaml benchmarking library at Jane Street. Um, Basically f- implemented the same ideas as Criterion did, and found that they weren't terribly happy with um, how stable the results were. Right, there was a fair amount of uh, of variance in um, numbers that they would see on repeated runs, and so, so they had this clever idea of going, well, what if we just you know change the number of iterations and then do a linear regression over um, the 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 variation in iterations and see if we got something that's a little bit more stable. And uh, what they found was that they got a much better and, and smaller, tighter variance in uh, run-to-run uh, performance numbers out of that. And also that they were able to measure much cheaper operations as a result of not depending on being able to measure these tiny time intervals. So um, that was kind of a nice quality of result coup that they pulled off. And of course, you know, they very sensibly talked up the uh, advantages of this approach and i was paying attention so i said well i'm just going to go ahead and steal that and so i did
2: very nice and and just to follow on that really quickly you mentioned that uh it's actually more straightforward with the environment that haskell brings but it it, there is the trickiness of laziness and uh in in the documentation there's mention of um, putting things into weak head normal form and so on uh this is something a lot of Haskellers, even myself, sometimes get confused about. So what kind of uh, quick tip or or, uh, could you distill it into what people need to do for benchmarking something that may be lazy? So uh, I think the, the, the principal
1: thing to do is figure out what it is that you actually want to measure, right? If you want to measure the cost of generating a fully evaluated data structure, then you should be using normal form uh, which is available in criterion via a uh, a function called nf and if that's not what you want then weak head normal form is probably the thing that you're looking for and really which of those you should be choosing depends on what you think your application needs to be looking at right so for example for um, something like a tree data structure or a you know, a a text value or something along those lines, um, then weak-head normal form may be sufficient. Um, For something like a potentially infinite data structure, then weak-head normal form may be necessary, because you don't want to actually try and evaluate the entire thing, because you'll never actually get a result back. So it does take a little bit of sophistication to figure out exactly what it is that you are looking to measure, right? Because it's very easy to uh, goal yourself into thinking, hey, I'm just going to evaluate this result to weak-head normal form, and then realize after the fact, hey, my seemingly expensive operation only took 25 nanoseconds because it turns out that all I was actually doing was just evaluating it down to the first constructor of a list, that the rest of which remains completely unevaluated. So that's the the most typical approach for somebody to make a mistake. But it, it's usually relatively obvious that your numbers are just way out of whack compared to your expectations if you if you do make that kind of mistake.
0: I actually wanted to follow up on the performance thing because I think... You possibly have more experience writing high-performance Haskell code than, let's say, ninety percent of the population of Haskell developers. I've noticed that in some of your blog posts, for instance, you have a post about um, optimizing the unencode function in AdoParsec, and what you ended up doing was you pre-allocated a buffer. Yep. And that's interesting to me because pre-allocating a buffer solved a laziness problem. But mm-hmm. that's something that I would have reached for in C or other low-level languages immediately. Mm-hmm. So, what what part of Haskell optimizations are tip? Do you employ typical methodologies that you might find in other languages, and how much of it is unique to Haskell's uh, non-strictness and laziness? It's a mix,
1: right? Um, and it depends on the particular like abstractions that you're working with, for want of a better description, right? So in the case of of, Adoparsec, we're typically dealing with inputs that are big, flat buffers of stuff, and that makes it relatively straightforward for, like, the underlying store for your bits to be a big, flat buffer full of stuff. And then the trick becomes one of going, okay, how do I hide the fact that I have a mutable big, flat buffer full of stuff um, in my implementation so that nobody can peek into it and see something change in front of their eyes that they ought not to be able to see? Um, on the other hand, we have, um, say, something like Parsec, which is, uh, like, at, at the higher level, um, quite heavily continuation-driven, right? And um, in that world you end up having to think about things like, you know, when, when when are bits of information passed from one continuation to another in, say, a boxed versus an unboxed form? Or when is a continuation that I'm about to call going to be inlined or not? How much is my code going to explode if I try and force things to be inlined? And um, those are typically considerations that, say, a C or C++ programmer is less likely to have just because... Um, they are less intimately dependent on the performance of inlining of lots of tiny little functions for things to either perform well or
0: explode horribly. How much special knowledge of, for instance, GHC idiosyncrasies like unboxed polymorphism, Mm -hmm. how much special knowledge of the GHC compiler have you acquired? How much of that have you found necessary when reaching for really tight performance?
1: I've acquired a fair bit of it over the course of time, and I've forgotten almost all of it um, and I think the forgetting happens more quickly than the acquiring so at any given point in time, I'd say I don't have a particularly extensive toolbox of GHC internals and the The result of that is that sometimes I end up in a situation where I could probably get more performance out of the code if I was only willing to like you know break open the GHC internals and read the, read it for a bit. Um, but you know, life is short, and uh, I, I I'm not always willing to uh, commit that kind of time.
0: How important do you think it is to know those things when you're when you're going for performance? Do you think you can get everything you need, or do you think there are some cases where you really have to go look into GHC? I think
1: it's one of those um, you can get 80% of the benefits with 20% of the knowledge situations, and I try and make sure that at most of the time I have only 20% of the knowledge, because I'm I'm happy <laughs> usually with 80% of the uh, of the benefits. So, you know, provided you understand some really obvious basic things like, um, you know, strict versus non-strict and uh, boxing versus not boxing of, um, you know, small atomic values like integers, you're kind of you're, you're, you're on the road there, right? That's not the eighty percent, but it's it's the first steps in that right direction, and picking up the rest of it really doesn't take all that much effort.
0: So I wanted to maybe take a step back. Usually, at the beginning of these things, we ask people about how they got into Haskell, and we sort of started mm-hmm. in the middle. So I wanted to go back and ask you, you know before most people had even heard of Haskell, you're writing the text library how mm-hmm. did How did that come to be?
1: Okay. So you want the, the origin story of the text library or the origin story of me doing Haskell stuff? Uh, the second actually, one first. They, they, <laughs> they, they, they actually have, um, believe it or not, the, the same genesis. Um, so, let's see. I'll, I'll start with the proper origin story, which is back in the early 90s when I was in college. I uh, I was a terrible undergraduate student, right? In... in Ireland and in much of Western Europe, the undergraduate educational system is very different to wh- what it's like in the US. So over there, um, most of the time, you've got this fixed curriculum of stuff that you have to sit through. And you're going to take classes whether you care about them or not. And uh, I am not very good at following other people's instructions about what I ought to care about. So I cut class like crazy when i was uh, an undergraduate and uh, i spent a bunch of time learning about unix you know going reading books in the library and stuff like that instead of going to class and in retrospect it was exactly the right thing to do right i've rarely regretted no sorry never regretted that decision but a part of the 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 process involved um... I, i stuck my neck out when i was in i don't know third year or something along those lines and applied for an internship in uh a supercomputing center in Switzerland and I brought one book with me which was a book called Implementing Functional Languages by uh Simon Peyton Jones and I think Simon Lester and uh couldn't make head nor tail of the bloody thing right I had pretty much grabbed it off a shelf and it was my sole reading for an entire summer stuck in the mountains in the middle of nowhere so um I I sort of bulldogged my way through it and Sent Simon a note about three or four months later, saying, "Hey, could you please take me on as a as a summer intern?" And uh, it's a very Simon-like uh, thing to say that he didn't ask me for a resume. He just said, "Okay, when can you start?" Um, so that's how I ended up working for you know Simon as an undergraduate student for a summer, and it was a pretty intense and great experience. I had no idea what the hell I was doing, but as part of that, I built a um, a type called packed string. And packed string was a you know an array of contiguous bytes. Is this starting to sound familiar? That um, could be stored compactly and um, and and operated on relatively efficiently. And it sat around in the in the GHC internals, getting various amounts of use for several years until. Um, Oh gosh, this was maybe even longer than several years, maybe over a decade, until uh, Don Stewart and um, Duncan Coots came along and built the ByteString library, which was kind of a successor to this packed string. And ByteString then l- bopped along for a while until, um, oh my gosh, I'm going to forget his name, Tom something. Tom, I really apologize for, getting, for forgetting your second name since you uh, wrote the genesis of the, what was going to turn into the text library. So he, he built... The, the first iteration of the text library um, as part of his master's thesis at Oxford, and um, then I basically picked it up and turned it from a master's thesis into something that you could actually use. And so he deserves credit for kind of you know getting the the, the, the ball rolling so to speak. But probably ninety some percent of the code that's in the library now is uh, is mine, and. Uh, I, I built the text library, you know, just basically observing that we were twenty almost years into uh Haskell existing and we still didn't have a really performant way of handling Unicode. And gosh, wouldn't it be nice if we did? And so text kind of married the, the best of um the, the byte string implementation with uh stream fusion as a way to uh try to get better performance out of pipelines of code, and um, it seems to have worked out relatively well, but of course, you know, I wasn't content with just making sure that the text library was functional, right? I actually wanted the damn thing to be fast. And so I looked around at the various different um, benchmarking libraries that were available for Haskell at the time and decided that they were all um, not up to snuff and so as as a a next thing in order to benchmark the text library and benchmark the byte string library i decided i would write this thing called criterion which also spawned a library called statistics which is a big you know library full of uh code for dealing with uh samples and statistical distributions and so on so I must have written an extra 25 to 30,000 lines of code in order to benchmark the text library and demonstrate to myself that it was fast enough. And of course, along the way, I discovered a whole bunch of ways in which it wasn't. So it led to a further pile of, uh, of implementation. So really what the text library is and what criterion is are reactions to this code that I built when I was about 20 years old as an undergraduate student in a lab in Glasgow.
0: So now in in 2015, after you've been doing Haskell for a bit longer, what excites you about Haskell development now? What what, what interests you these days? Um, I think the stuff
1: that I find interesting at the moment is just kind of the breadth of things that people are doing with Haskell. And, um, you know, that varies from, uh, you know, edward commits mad science uh... like let's apply category theory to everything approach through to uh... really interesting libraries like uh... pipes and uh... conduit um, you know down to people building applications with haskell these days right be they startups or individuals putting together some tooling so it's kind of nice to see that the tent is uh... still big and that people are still finding their way in and being able to actually kind of make a difference to the the fate of the the field that's pretty cool
0: you mentioned ed's mad science how much Uh of that mad science do you employ in your own work because it doesn't seem like there's a lot of category theory abstract nonsense going on into your at least what we can see about the way that you reason about these tools that you're writing
1: yeah i don't tend to use that particular mental toolbox very much um and that's mostly just because I prefer to think and operate at a somewhat lower level of abstraction. Um, you know, m- my, my main interest is not in building sort of fancy abstract code. It's in building really fast stuff that I can actually use to solve problems. And um, you can certainly apply some equational reasoning and, 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 and little bits here and there of, uh, of categorical special sauce to that end. But um, it's actually not all that helpful in general. And so, you know, I prefer to operate with the toolbox that I have rather than crack open another one and be uh, not entirely pleased with what's in there.
0: Hopefully this will motivate some people who think that they can't do Haskell because they haven't read category theory Mm -hmm. textbooks yet. That that they actually no, they can and you can get a lot done.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, let, let's move on to talk. Uh, I want to return again to the performance side of things, and I sure. remember when uh, Real World Haskell, the book, came out, and how exciting it was to see. Okay, we're going to see how guys who are not just uh, you know solving toy problems use this use this uh, language. Um, a lot has changed since then, as you yourself have, have, have noted. Where yep. do people go once they finish real world Haskell now what, what, what are some places they can look for for new information or, or where to go next yeah that's a good question
1: I actually don't really know the answer to be honest um, I think uh, we could certainly do with a you know a, a new generation of learning material that is not you know scattered across a zillion stack overflow answers and a trillion wiki pages and a bunch of random reddit comments um and it would be pretty good to see somebody actually step up with that right i, I can see there being kind of two different things that would be valuable one is a cookbook right take say the, the you know top 20 haskell libraries that people use and Writes, uh, write a chapter per library. Here's how you get started with this thing. Here's what you can use it for. Here's how to understand how well your code is performing when you're using it. And maybe they can contribute
0: to that to the documentation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well contribute it to the documentation or better yet, actually like stitch it together into a single book and call mm-hmm. that like, you know, you know, further adventures in real world Haskell or what have you. And of course, you know, the original book itself um, is obviously sorely in need of a revision too. Um, And, you know, that's, I think, a little bit beyond my energy levels these days since I have uh, other distractions to keep me busy, but it would be a useful thing to have. So, you know, in a way, we're better off than we were, say, a decade ago before this current generation of books came along. Um, But now that the books have aged a little bit, um, it would be quite beneficial to have
2: another turn of that publication-related crank. For anyone interested in doing that, could you give them an idea of what the process of writing real-world Haskell was like? I mean, I imagine it was uh, it was a big project. Um, yeah. How, how long did it take? How how intense was it? It was probably eighteen months
1: of continuous effort uh, of basically sitting down and writing as much as I could within a, a window of an hour or two. Um, Four to six days a week. So, you know, not a great amount per day. And um, really, it's one of those things where the, uh, any individual day's effort felt kind of insignificant, but it, it slowly amounted to something over the course of time. And um, and that's that's really what the process of of producing something pretty good is like. And you know, if you go through the uh, the website, you'll see that there's plenty of comments on mistakes and oversights and things like that. Because at some point, you 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 kind of run out of steam, right? You've read each chapter more times than than, than is reasonable. You're actually blind to the mistakes that you've made, and um, and you, you just can't handle another round of comments, right? So it's finally time to just say, you know what. This, is, this has gotten to the best place that, that we could get it and, uh, and, and let it fly free into the world. Um, so it is certainly possible to produce, a I think, a better book than we managed. Um, but I'm still, even in the light of you know, almost 10 years of it being out there in the world, pretty happy with how it turned out. But it's, it's a friggin' soul sucking process producing one of these things.
2: <laughs> I think you have a right to be. Not everybody can can uh, uh, send out checks for every uh, revision, uh, every mistake, and uh, keep revising their book through their entire lifetime. Oh, like, no kidding. Well, well, you know, it's it's one thing
1: if you're a Don Knuth and your job is to, like, you know, sit in an ivory tower and produce pretty things permanently. Because, um, you know, he, he can legitimately say, I'm not going to talk to anybody this month or this year. And I'm just going to, uh, you know, crank out a new portion of a chapter of TaoCP. Um, but you know, the rest of us are in that web of obligation between family, friends, jobs, life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, and there, you kind of, you know, you have to, you have to, you have to make that that eighty twenty rule apply, right? Where yeah, sure, I could put in five times as much effort and get a book that was 20% better. And, you know, maybe I wouldn't have to worry about a family anymore because they'd all have gone. Um, <laughs> and I chose to uh, optimize for a
2: slightly different outcome than that. So, so just following up on that a little bit, um, on this idea of, of, uh, of a few things that um, people can get the biggest bang for, are there mm-hmm. a few things that you have in mind that you – you, if you had the time and you could, if you could magically throw them in as an addendum mm-hmm. or a few extra chapters on real-world Haskell, uh-huh. uh, what would they be? I think for a sort of a modern real-world
1: Haskell, there is definitely some uh, some some changes of emphasis that I would put in. Right, so I'd probably have a chapter on either conduit or pipes, which are you know, fairly widely used uh, libraries for essentially asynchronous programming, right? They don't make it look like asynchronous programming, but that's essentially what they are. They're sort of reactive programming uh, done slightly differently than than the ways it's done in uh, more mainstream languages. So those are pretty significant. I think I would put some time into, um, you know, building both the client and server sides of uh, web APIs because that is a thing these days. and, you know, there's there's a few good frameworks and libraries available for doing both of those things, um, certainly more than there were eight years ago. I think I would probably also revamp something like, say, the performance-oriented chapters, right, because Criterion didn't exist back when we wrote Re- Real World Haskell, and it's a relatively straightforward thing to use these days. Um, I would probably also be talking about some of the operational considerations around making a say, you know, a Haskell-based service run well on something like AWS, right? So, you know, how do you monitor this? How do you uh, determine whether you have a memory leak? How do you actually resolve those kinds of things? Uh, that all turns out to be pretty important in practice and uh, and very much real-world concerns. And I would also add some material around, well, what if you're talking to some other kind of system, right? So be it a database or a distributed system, right? So talking to MySQL, talk, using Thrift to glue um, components together that are written in different languages, whatever it happens to be, right? These are other interesting aspects of making Haskell actually work in a real environment that would be well worth covering. And they they go beyond just the, the how do, how, how do I even program in Haskell in the first place, which is <laughs> book one <laughs> of that series.
0: Well, if anyone's interested in writing a successor to real-world Haskell, perhaps you can tell them where to send your portion of their royalty checks. <laughs>
2: there you go. Okay, so uh, let's go away from the real world for a second back into academia. I see that you mm-hmm. uh, just last year taught CS240H again at uh, Stanford. Mm-hmm. Um, ha- have you noticed any any change in the kind of students that are coming through that that particular class nowadays compared to in the past i know it's probably just been a few years in that class but i imagine yeah
1: i've only been teaching it for a few years exactly so i don't think they're i mean they all just look really young right and they keep getting younger but that might be me but no i don't think there's been a significant shift i mean uh you know stanford students are a a distinct and unique bunch compared to uh the, the typical student population and um they tend to be pretty bright and motivated, and that's makes for an enjoyable environment to teach in. But I can't say that I notice any like population shifts. But my sample size is small and infrequent.
2: You also mentioned that uh, that you actually enjoy being in the room with uh, with so many uh, engaged minds, as opposed to like mm-hmm. a MOOC experience. Um, yeah. So, do you think you will continue with it, or do you, uh, or will you be? I mean, do you want to continue teaching uh, Haskell and functional systems? Yeah, I'm I'm actually signed up for
1: CS240H again this year, and uh, I'm looking forward to teaching it again. And, you know, I think some of the things that will be fun about doing it this time around are we spent altogether too much time helping students who were stuck in Cabal hell. Familiar terms, I'm sure, right? So we'll probably get them to use uh, FB complete's uh, stack tool this time around. And hopefully that will let them focus more on writing code and less on why the hell doesn't my bloody code even build in the first place. So that, that should help uh, free up people's time to focus on what actually matters.
0: Have there been other um, more Haskell-related sticking points in the curriculum? What do you find that people to, uh, struggle with the most? Um, they struggle on all the classical things, right? So by the time they come along to C
1: S two hundred forty H they've already been taught how to program in an imperative style. They've already been taught object oriented programming and now they're basically being given this different mental tool set and the the things that they have to unlearn in order to um to be able to take advantage of it are like all the same things that the rest of us struggled with, so there's there's nothing new under the sun there, right? So everything from like how do I think about laziness to, you know, how do I how do I pass around a piece of information from function to function to function that you know you as a more experienced Haskeller might think, well, I'll just toss that into a state monad or whatever it happens to be. Um, coming up to speed with monads at all is a, as usual kind of a problem. Um, And then, you know, moving on to uh, other areas that are a little bit uh, more um, off the beaten track, like say, applicative functors or things like that um, end up being little bumps on their own path too. But, you know, one of the things that comes from teaching the class again and again is figuring out a better mental model of where students are likely to stumble and also what path through the forest actually leads them into the light the, the fastest. Um, so I think we've gotten better at it over the, the few years that we've been teaching it, and I'm hoping that we'll uh, manage a, a better uh, iteration again this time, right? So I'm I'm often throwing away previous year's notes and kind of redoing them, partly as a service to myself so that they're fresh in my mind, and also partly because my thoughts around how I can do a better job evolve from one year to the next.
0: That's especially interesting because... There are some internet communities that are using your lecture notes from previous years as a basis for a sort of informal mm-hmm. MOOC or learning mm-hmm. curriculum, right? And I have to think that that must be much less efficient than being in the same room and having access to a lecturer and being able to talk about things.
1: Um, I don't know. It 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 varies. Um, I mean, one, ad- one disadvantage of the traditional lecturing model is that you think that maybe people are going to actually stop and ask you questions and so on, but they actually don't, right? It's very much a uh, you know a performance in front of an audience rather than some sort of an interactive thing, and it's actually quite difficult to break away from that model, right? Because as inefficient as the "I am talking at you, you big pile of people" is as a model for teaching. Um, it's actually much easier to do than actually forcing everybody to like sit down talk to each other talk to you challenge you with questions um and and be able to roll with the punches right so actually taking really strong advantage of the, the fact that everybody is stuck in this room for this assigned period of time, it's hard. And I will I will not make any bones about that. I'm not sure that that model would actually translate well to being recorded for a, a MOOC form, But I think actually that, you know, looking at our lecture notes is not nearly as much of a step down from being in the room as you might think, hmm. except for like, you know, my stupid jokes are not normally <laughs> present in the lecture notes.
0: People seem to be doing pretty well with them, and I was surprised. Because I, I sort of assumed that something important would have been lost without being there.
1: Yeah. No. I tried to write the write this the lecture notes in a style that makes them relatively straightforward to follow, right? So there's kind of, there's, there's a few different schools of how you put together um, slides to give talks, right? Mm -hmm. There's the, I'm just going to put two or three words on a slide, and then I'm going to talk all around it. Or there's the, I'm going to um, fill the slide with so much detail that nobody can actually hear the words I'm saying because they're trying to read all the words. And I try and fit somewhere in the middle. And of course, you know, that's not a balance that I always get right, Uh, but I think it, it seems to work relatively well for these slides being something that you can actually follow after the fact without having to have my voice in your ear.
2: Do you see Haskell sort of breaking out from its traditional niches of, of parsers and concurrency and high performance uh, areas and becoming more, more of a general tool, or, uh, or do you think it will kind of remain where it's been successful?
1: It's been growing slowly over the past number of years, but the, the growth rate hasn't accelerated. So it's hard for me to say that I think it's going to grow significantly more. And I think that's actually fine. Um, I think it's going to continue to have a loyal and devoted following. And um, I think it's you know still in spite of many years of osmosis, based transmission of ideas into other languages, a, a considerably better language for working in than uh, many of its competitors. But, you know, the fact of it is, it's actually got this, you know, difficult to learn reputation, much of which is earned. And, um, you know, the fact that some vocal members of the community are enthralled to abstract mathematics rather than just getting stuff done is not exactly helpful on that front. Um, so I think there's, if If it was going to really take off in some massive way, chances are that that would already have happened. But I think that the fact that it 's not taken off beyond where it has is not a sign of defeat or or lack of success i'm I'm pretty happy with the world that we have
0: it's interesting that people are getting this impression that you have to learn all the math first so that you can understand Haskell and I think practically for a lot of people it happened the other way. I learned mm-hmm. Haskell then i then i when i discovered category theory it was mostly oh everything makes so much more sense now that i have this framework to put things in yeah but if i if i had been forced to stop learning haskell and then go spend three months reading a category theory book i think i would have given up
1: Yep, i do not i do not regret my lack of uh abstract mathematical sophistication right it has i wouldn't say has held me back
2: Uh, so so following on that you mentioned that a lot of ideas are getting taken up by other tools and languages uh, have you seen anything that excites you outside of the of the haskell world um anything that that people are playing with there at Facebook or that you 've seen otherwise uh that you're interested um. in and you had if you had the time so you know
1: not to blow the Facebook trumpet too loudly, but some of the work that 's happening um both, you know, sort of within Facebook's walls, but is also quite visible to the outside world is uh, quite exciting to me, right? So, if you were to look at, for example, the uh, the React framework that our engineers have built for programming in JavaScript, and then at its uh, logical extension, React Native, for doing um, native iOS and Android programming, like, the underlying ideas behind react are entirely functional programming based right from um heavy dependence on immutable data structures through to um you know these obviously comprehensible and composable pipelines of code for transforming things um through to you know construction of uh the uis being a relatively stateless process that is all actually really exciting to me from a from a, like, taking the, the core ideas that matter about FP and making them available to and exciting to working programmers in a way that helps them to be more productive. So that's pretty tremendous. Um, and, you know, along those same lines, we have this uh, type system that uh, has been developed within Facebook for um, JavaScript, which also is uh, implemented in um, in OCaml uh, behind the scenes, but again, it, it takes some of the the really interesting ideas from type theory and from gradual typing and applies them to helping people to write practical JavaScript code that is less likely to crash and do surprising things at runtime. And uh, that union of functional programming and strong types in the service of um, getting people to be more productive in you know this universally used language that so many programmers are familiar with javascript is uh really quite exciting
2: what's the name of that one is is it publicly
0: released and it's not uh...
1: yeah that that type system is called flow okay and it has been publicly released
0: I, I i'd like just to point out that you didn't say that we need monads in javascript i think there are some things that are sort of trappings the functional programming that aren't really central to the idea and people That's get caught true. up on them
1: yeah um i think if you if you scratch the surface in um react-based programs or in uh relay which is a a relay is a library again built at facebook that is um conceptually very similar to haxel in that it allows you to batch together data fetches and to um, to issue them asynchronously and to uh, cache stuff across requests where that makes sense. You'll see that there's uh, you know, both a, a common philosophical approach between it and Haxl, even though they're different languages, but also um, the relay programming model happens to you know, sneak in some monads through the back door that uh, you just don't really have to think about very much.
0: Just as long as we don't have to talk about them. Exactly, that's
1: right. We just refer to them. What was Simon Peyton Jones's term? Something along the lines of "warm fuzzy things." <laughs> so every language needs its warm fuzzy things.
2: Um, is there anything you'd like to talk about that you're working on personally? I, I see uh, WREC, or, or however you pronounce it. You, you yeah, know, REC. REC. Okay. Yep. So um, yeah,
1: I haven't I haven't actually worked on REC in a little while, but you know, REC was a Kind of a two pronged um, uh, library for for me right one was doing client side web programming in Haskell was just this not very good experience right because there's 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 an obvious need for there to be a pretty high level API that is relatively simple to use and lets you express reasonably complicated needs um, succinctly and that library did not exist, right? So I said, okay, well, it's time to write one. And uh, that's that's where REC got born. And then the other side of that was, um, it was pretty clear to me that for dealing with the consequences of issuing a, a web request and actually getting a response back, um, EdComet's lenses were going to be a really good way of dealing with the uh, semi-structured data that you get back. So I wanted to um, sort of experiment for want of a better description with, uh, with lenses as an API for making all of this relatively straightforward to use. And uh, I think it worked out pretty well. So, you know, I was aiming simultaneously at having this be a useful library after the manner of, uh, Python's requests library and also making it really powerful to work with. So I think on, on some fronts, um, it beats, uh, Requests, which is this beautiful Python library that, uh, you know, deservedly gets a lot of attention and, and a lot of love. But I think rec for dealing with uh, what comes out of a response is uh, pretty damn sweet.
0: Especially and, combined uh, with uh, ASON for handling JSON APIs. I found that if you just write a, a URL generator and some ASON classes, then you basically get a free uh, client for your JSON API.
2: Yep, pretty much. Uh, anything else, Brian? I think we've got five more minutes here
0: with, with Brian before we get a little. Yeah, go.
2: no, th- I think that pretty much uh, uh, reaches
1: it at the moment. You know, I, I I think actually one one interesting thing to talk about is that in a way, um, my my Haskell code has become a victim of its success, by which I mean that. Um, you know, I've I've written quite a lot of code that is open source and available for for wide use, and uh, and that means that when I can find little bits of time these days to sit down and write code, I'm actually not really writing code for the most part, right? What I'm doing is I'm fishing through several months worth of accumulated GitHub issues, and I'm fishing through several months worth of accumulated uh, pull requests, and trying to make sense of them, and trying to decide, okay, you know, which one of these things. Needs some work. Which one of these can I apply? Where do I need to issue a release? How long has it been since I last released such and such a thing? Right. So um, that's it's 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 both a good and a bad thing. Right. On the one hand, it means that like these things continue to be alive and and useful to people, and people are interested in contributing to them. But on the other hand, it means that like I'm sort of like a fly trapped in amber. Right. Um, uh, I can I can foresee there being a fairly straightforward future in which. I just kind of maintain the same pile of stuff indefinitely because I have no t- I can I can choose to either let it bit rot a little and write something new or sort of do my duty by people and I I have mixed feelings about having co-maintainers in some instances right because it's very hard to find people who are um, for want of a better description ideologically compatible right what you, what you don 't want to do as somebody who 's t- devoted years to a library is hand it off to somebody who 's going to like take it off at like ninety degrees to what you thought you wanted it to be right be that either aesthetically or where the API is or quality wise or whatever it happens to, to, to wh- whichever access is is important to you so um, i've 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 clung on to some of these things for probably longer than makes sense and there's there's a few of these libraries where i 've got um, co-maintainers who are very helpful, but then they become victims of their own success too. So maybe you need uh,
0: maybe you need a team of interns. Oh god, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> well, usually I don't have anything else. Usually we end up by asking you if there's anything that you'd like to talk about, uh, but we're definitely running short on your time here.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think um, I think just that interesting observation about like you have to be careful about not writing too much code is. Uh, not intuitive, right? Because it's it's not a problem that people necessarily think of, but it it's a genuine thing.
2: Ed, Ed if you're listening, take uh, take a warning here. And uh, we'll also, there we'll you go. on the none of to none of his of
0: libraries have any any bugs, so I don't think he has, <laughs> <laughs> because they're all they're all based on unassailable you know mad science principles.
2: That's right. Right. You've been listening to The Haskell Cast, Episode 10, with special guest Brian O'Sullivan, recorded on September 23, 2015. For notes from this show and recordings of other shows, visit www.haskellcast.com.